there was a beautiful phrase that that was shared with me by another great investor that I that I write about, a guy called Nick Sleep, very remarkable guy, who was really into cycling. And what and and Nick Sleep talked about the aggregation of marginal gains, which is a very which is a very fa- fancy sounding term, but if you unpack it, what he's basically saying is there are all of these places, all of these habits that give you a marginal advantage, right? You eat well consistently, it's a marginal advantage. You exercise consistently, it's a marginal advantage. You meditate every day, 12 minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, it's a marginal advantage. It, it, it doesn't, none of these things seem that big a deal on the day, but it's the aggregation of all of these marginal gains. It's, it's when you combine them all that they become very powerful. And then when you combine them all over decades, it's unstoppable. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax, let's take the edge off, grab a nice glass of bourbon, and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I'm James Vermillion, founder of Vermillion Private Wealth. I've read dozens of investing books over the years, but few have been as insightful, well-written, and powerful as William Green's Richer, Wiser, Happier, How the World's Greatest Investors Win in Markets and Life. And when you get the chance to share bourbon and talk to someone like William, you take it every time. Over the last 25 years, he has interviewed many of the world's best investors, people like Charlie Munger, Jack Bogle, Will Danoff, Joel Greenblatt, Bill Miller, Sir John Templeton, and many, many others, exploring the questions of what qualities and insights enable them to achieve enduring success. Green has written for many leading publications in the U.S. and Europe, including The New Yorker, Time, Fortune, Forbes, Barron's, Fast Company, Money, Worth, Bloomberg Markets, The Los Angeles Times, The Boston Globe, and on and on and on. He's reported in places like China, India, Japan, the Philippines, Bangladesh, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, the United States, Mexico, England, France, Monaco, Poland, Italy, and Russia. And he's interviewed presidents, prime ministers, inventors, criminals, prize-winning authors, CEOs of some of the world's largest companies, and countless billionaires. Born and raised in London, Green was educated at Eton College, studied English literature at Oxford University, and received a master's degree from Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. During our conversation, William shares some incredible lessons from his interactions with these successful investors and lessons we can all use to invest and live better. He shares stories of incredible people like Arnold Vandenberg, who overcame an incredibly difficult start to life, rewired his thinking, and became a very wealthy man, but more importantly, a caring, giving person. To help invest better for myself and my clients, it's important that I continuously learn, surround myself with really smart people, and reinforce the habits that lead to long-term success. And this conversation did all of those things. Enjoy. William, thank you so much for coming on Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I am absolutely delighted to talk to you today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here with you. I want to start, before we get right into to sipping a little bourbon, I want to talk um, and just and say how much I enjoyed your book. And I don't say that to 
flatter you or anything like that. I truly enjoyed it. I've read dozens and dozens of investing books since I was a teenager. And this is truly one of my all-time favorites. I think it was beautifully written, a perfect blend of investing lessons kind of combined with life philosophies and ways to live a more meaningful life. Thank you for for writing the book. Thank you. I'm very partial to any form of flattery. So uh, (laughs) I once actually, I once went for a a meeting with a boss of mine at Time Magazine when I was purely a journalist who was unbelievably charming and incredibly flattering. And I discovered that he had actually written a book about flattery. And despite that, I, despite knowing how brilliant a flatterer he was, I was still utterly bowled over by the charm of this guy. So what's amazing is, you know, when, when anyone tells us anything nice about ourselves, we're like, yeah, yeah, please just go on. Continue, uh, so, please. Exactly. So thank you. I appreciate it. I know um, when I shipped the bourbon to you, I shipped it up to New York. So I thought it would be fitting if maybe we didn't have a New York connection. Today, we'll be sipping on a bourbon that a friend of mine, a dear friend, gave me as a gift, um, actually, when I started my own firm. So thank you, Kurt, for for this bottle. But it's a blended bourbon. So it's bourbons from Kentucky, Tennessee, and Indiana. But they are blended and sent to New York, where they are proofed down to uh, 91 proof. Um, and they use limestone water from Widow Jane, which is a mine in Rosendale, New York, which I believe is in between New York City and Albany. It's actually a New York and Kentucky product, um, as well as Indiana and Tennessee. Um, so yeah, it's Widow Jane, ten year old, and I've had it several years ago, but I don't remember too much about it. So I'm excited to have it again and share it with you. Excellent. And you said it's called Widow Jane. Yeah, Widow Jane. That's a great title. All right, great. So, so tell, um, tell I, me when to when to start sipping. Well, let me ask you: Do you drink Do you drink bourbon very often, or normally, or? I, I'm not a huge drinker, but I do drink bourbon. And and because I have trouble controlling how much I eat, if I if I drank a lot as well, I'd be in real trouble. So so it's much so so I have a couple of glasses of wine a week and and then I probably have a glass of bourbon or scotch every two or three weeks. So this Very is nice. a treat for me. Well, we will just sip today. But uh, go ahead, give it a, a, a little smell, a little taste, Beautiful. and kinda let me let me know what you think about it. Beautiful. All right. Well, cheers. L'chaim. To, to yes. Cheers. See, I, bet, I bet nobody on your podcast has used any Hebrew words. So, so L'chaim just means to life. Chaim, I, I guess it's life. So to life. It's actually, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful toast. This is lovely. Absolutely. It's very smooth. It's not, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes it really does feel like drinking fire water, but this. Oh is, yeah. Um, and you can feel it down in your yeah. gut. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. And even on the nose, there's really not much ethanol kind of alcoholy uh, mm. notes on the nose or, or in the taste, it's very, um, I guess some banana almost like a, huh. but not almost like a banana bread or something like a little bit sweeter. Um, yeah, I really like that. Your, your, your friend chose well. Thank you. Yeah, he did indeed. Excellent. Well, we'll continue to sip on this huh. and I want to get right into it because as I mentioned, I, I found your book to be extremely just fantastic in a lot of ways, but this is, there was a topic in there that came up really multiple times. Mm. And as I read through Richer, Wise, and Happier, this particular concept is something I've kind of thought about a lot over the last probably two years. It's really the concept of simplicity. Mm. And I thought about it, you know, previously in regard to investing and really just life, simplifying life and getting down to the, the things that really bring joy. 
And I want to read a, a, a message or a, a little passage that I thought was particularly well-crafted and kind of hit home for me. Intelligent people are easily seduced by complexity while underestimating simple ideas that carry tremendous weight. I think that happens a whole heck of a lot, especially when it comes to investing. Can you talk a little bit about simplicity? Yeah. And actually, I I have a feeling that I stole that particular idea from a friend of mine called Ken Schubenstein, who I write about in the book, who's a very remarkable guy who is a professor of finance, uh, a professor of value investing, I guess, advanced value investing at Columbia Business School for about a decade and was a hedge fund manager and private equity fund manager and then quit and became a neurologist, which is an extraordinary thing to do and has been treating COVID patients and, and, and other patients with neurological issues. And Ken, who's incredibly smart, said to me a few years ago, the the best investors were people who did incredibly well at school and on the whole, and they tended to be rewarded for solving really complex problems. And so throughout their childhood, throughout their youth, these were the kids who were getting, you know, 800 on their, on their SATs in, in math. And so, I mean, they were really bright kids. And then suddenly you get into this discipline of investing. And as people like Buffett and his partner, Charlie Munger, who I write about a great deal in the book, say, there are no extra points for difficulty. And so I think I make the point at some point in a kind of semi-facetious way. At some point in the book, I say, it's not like um, uh, like Olympic diving or something like that, where you get the extra point for difficulty. And so one of the things that I found repeatedly in interviewing great investors is that they were looking for what um, what Buffett would call a two-inch putt, for example, or or jumping over a, a one-foot hurdle instead of a four-foot hurdle. And it strikes me as a really profound and important idea that we we tend to want to complicate life and add complexity life to life. And we, we do it with our schedules as well, right? We're constantly thinking, let me get busier. Let me do more. Let me be more productive. And and so I'm applying this principle of simplicity, not only in investing, but in every area of my life. And so there's an idea that I write about in the book called the art of subtraction, where I'm thinking, okay, so how do I, how do I streamline my life? How do I simplify my life? What do I remove in terms of complexity? And, and I think for, for your listeners, just to go through this, this practice of sort of saying, okay, what's most important to me? What, what do I really care about? And what am I best at? And then you pretty much remove most, most of the other things. And so while other people are focusing on making their lives more complex and faster and speedier, you're actually, you're saying, no, let me be really disciplined and kind of almost ruthless about saying, this is what actually matters and what I'm good at. And what I found repeatedly is that the, the greatest investors are, are doing this, that they're very disciplined about playing games that they can win. So, so this idea of simplicity, you can actually, you can find it in, in, you can apply it in all different ways in your life, both in investing and in life. One of the things I would say is this idea of, of just reducing complexity, reducing the number of things you're trying to do and focusing on the things that are really important. Another, I think that, that I write about a great deal in the chapter about simplicity is understanding a few really basic rules of both of markets and life that are approximately true over time and then really going big on them. And, and so, for example, I write about this extraordinary guy, Joel Greenblatt, who's one of 
the most successful hedge fund managers of all time, who averaged, I think, 40% a year over 20, 20 years, an incredible rate of return. And, and when I asked Joel, what's the secret of investing? How are you so successful? He's like, look, it all comes down to one principle. He said, it's, it's really simple. All you're doing is valuing a business and then buying it for much less than it's worth. And he said, once you understand that really simple principle, that, that you just need to value a business and buy it for less than it's worth, it clarifies everything. And it allows you to see that most of what people are doing in the markets is actually silly. It's, it's nonsense. It's a, it's a total distraction. So for example, he said to me, if, if he, for example, had invested in a supermarket in the Midwest, and suddenly the news is full of, of talk that say the, 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 the Turkish economy is unraveling, or some sovereign wealth fund is unraveling, or, or to look at the news this week that, that Afghanistan is falling apart. He's like, does it matter to me? If I'm just buying, if I'm just valuing a business and buying it for less than it's worth, it kind of clarifies everything. And, and so if you apply that way of thinking to investing, it's incredibly clarifying because you say, let me not waste my time trying to predict whether the market's going up or down, which Greenblatt can't do, Buffett can't do, Munger can't do. So why the hell should I think I can do it as a schmuck living in, you know, suburban New York? Um, with an English literature degree, you know why? Why should I? Why should I fool myself into believing that's possible? I should focus on valuing things and buying them for less than they're worth. But the other thing Greenblatt said to me is, "Well, there's a there's a really important question there, a practical question, which is, do you actually know how to value a business?" And that's a really provocative and important question. And so, for most investors, Joe Greenblatt's view is they have no business picking individual stocks because they have no idea how to value a business. And right. so there are all of these different techniques for valuing businesses, whether it's this kind of cash flow analysis or, or comparing it to the valuations of similar businesses or figuring out what a, what a private buyer of that company would pay if they bought the whole thing. There are lots of different techniques that are all knowable. But for someone like me, I've never really bothered to learn those things. And I'm not really that interested and so just to sort of say, well, that's not a game that I'm equipped to play. Let me play a different game. Let me invest in a different way. Maybe I need to outsource it to someone who does know what they're doing. Maybe I need to invest with a fund manager who does know how to value businesses. And, and so that one understanding of this really, really simple principle turns out to be incredibly valuable. And so, so you, you need to figure out what are the things you truly believe in life that are approximately true over time? Like, it, like if, you're, if you're kind and decent to the people around you, to your friends, to your family, to strangers, are you going to have a better life? Yeah, almost certainly. If you eat well, if you, if you have good nutrition and you exercise regularly, are you going to be healthier? Yeah, almost certainly. You know, and so you can actually apply this filter, this way of thinking in every area of your life to say, let, let me really simplify and get down to a few basic principles that are at least approximately true over time and then go big on that. And for me, because we live in a very complex world where I don't understand very much, there's a lot of stuff that's changing really fast. I, I have no idea what, what the Delta variant is going to do to us of COVID, what the, what the Lambda variant, which is racing around Peru at the moment, what that's going to do. But I do know that if I buy stuff that I understand for less than it's worth 
And if I eat sensibly and I treat people decently and I exercise, so I know that I'm I'm stacking the odds in my favor of having a successful life. And and so that one idea of understanding a few simple basic principles in life, I I think has really profound and very practical ramifications. Yeah, you 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 made a point there in in that discussion that I think was really brilliant about the book. And you mentioned somewhere in the book, probably towards the end, that you could have written and included a lot of very successful investors and 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 successful people, but you didn't because they didn't necessarily exude certain values as a person that you wanted to talk about in the book. And I think that was very interesting of a decision to make. And I, I love that about the book because I don't particularly want to care how to get rich or how to make a lot of money. Um, if it's at the expense of, of trying to, trying my best at least to be a good person and treat people respectfully and, and live as healthy of a life a, as I can. So, you know, that was something that I appreciated about how you crafted the book and thought uh, that was uh, very important. Yeah. I, I interviewed very, I mean, I've interviewed so many billionaires over the last 25 years, right? I, I, and, and there are billionaires who, after you meet them, you think, well, yeah, so they have a real mastery of making money, often at other people's expense. You know, maybe they overcharge, they, they charge really high fees, or maybe they're kind of suing their partner, or maybe they've divorced three times or whatever. I, I'm just not that impressed with that. The, the ability just to make vast sums of money, there's not something inherently that honorable or noble about it. It's a great party trick, but it's not it's not really any more impressive than being able to like chip a golf ball into a hole from off the green. It's like it's nice, but it's like, you know, it, it's like when when we started this uh, this discussion, you know, I tore the wrapper off the the bourbon and kind of threw it over my desk and over my chair into the trash can. It's like if someone paid me enormous amounts of, of money for that ability, it's like it's not a very socially redeeming ability <laughs> that I have to throw things across a room into a small bin. And so I, I would say when I'm thinking about who to write about, I'm thinking, yeah, I want people who've done very well over many years as investors. I, wa- I, want, I want readers to be able to say, yeah, this person actually is legitimately successful and there's stuff to learn from them. But there's also this beautiful phrase from John Maynard Keynes, this famous economist who, who was also a great investor, who talked about worldly wisdom. And, and I think people like Charlie Munger, for example, Buffett's partner for more than 40 years, who I interviewed for the book, he is the embodiment of worldly wisdom. These are people who are thinking about questions like, what's the money for? How, is, is it is it worth behaving badly to become rich? Do you have to behave badly to become rich? What do you lose by behaving badly? He he talks he talks about I, I, I talked to him a couple of weeks ago and he was saying people people like like me we get a ton of credit for behaving in a moral fashion and he said I get much more credit than I deserve because actually I figured out it was a really smart way to operate that if you behave in a right. moral way it's actually it's more lucrative it, you and and I think he's being slightly self deprecating and saying that he doesn't want to make himself seem like some kind of saint when he's not but I. But I think he's thought very, very seriously about these issues of how do you make money and how do you build a life that 
where you've done it honorably. And there was an extraordinary story where I, I, I went to see him in in Los Angeles and when I first interviewed him. And um, there, there was a meeting of a company called The Daily Journal, which in addition to being vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, he's chairman of The Daily Journal. So I went for the annual meeting and I interviewed him before and then I sat in while he answered questions for hours and then I got to ask him more questions at the end. And one of the things he talked about was this company that he and Buffett had been offered the opportunity to buy that he said was the best business they had ever seen. He said this was just the most unbelievable business. And it was basically, it was in snuff. And so um, he said, we knew going in that it was a killing product, as he put it. And so he said, why the hell would we buy it? And so this other extraordinarily rich family of billionaires who have hospital wings named after them and the like, bought it and they made something like $3 billion profit off this brilliant business. And Munger said, would my life have been any better if I had had that $3 billion, if we had made that $3 billion? He's like, absolutely not. Our lives would have been worse. And I, I think that's such an interesting idea that it's not, it's not just becoming rich. It's thinking about what constitutes a successful and abundant life. And, and, and it turns out that Part of part of that is having self-respect because you behave morally and decently. Part of it is just that when you behave well, you draw better people into your life. And so it's actually really it's really wise behavior to play to to play this game in an honorable and decent way. And for, for me, there's a sort of there's a there's a stealth aspect of the book where I'm yeah, in a in a conscious way, on the surface, I'm trying to show people here's how you become rich. But also underneath, I'm sort of saying, there's a different way to do capitalism that's kind of more enlightened form of capitalism where you're treating people decently you 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 give your money away in a decent way that that, that creates um benefits for society and 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 you behave well with your partners and you behave well with your kids and stuff and i and i think when you see the billionaires who are just masters of making money and don't behave in that way it may, maybe it hasn't hampered them in making money, but you always see them with divorces or lawsuits or kids who hate them. And there was a wonderful thing where Munger said to me, um, he was talking about Sumner Redstone, who was a, a peer of his at um, Harvard Law School. And Sumner Redstone, he said, made billions of dollars more than me. So he said, you could look at Sumner Redstone and say, he's much more successful. And he said, I, I don't look at it that way at all. He said, even his wives and his children didn't love him. They hated him too. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, he's like, I look at Sumner Redstone as an example of what, all, all my life I've looked at him as an example of what I don't want to be. And I, I don't know, I'm not saying this to damn Sumner Redstone, who I've never met and uh, never, <laughs> never interviewed. And I actually have a feeling, if I, if I remember rightly, I'm pretty sure that Sumner Redstone was in charge of the company that owned Simon & Schuster, which owned Scribner, which was the company that published my book. So when I when I was maligning him in the book, I didn't realize that I was actually maligning the the the, the, the guy in charge of this entire conglomerate. But but it, yeah, so it's not to cast aspersions at him, but it's just to say yeah, there's a there's a more enlightened way to operate that may actually turn out to be very very profitable because you draw great people into your life. And so why 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 worship people just because they were really good at this one particular game of making money and did it unethically? I couldn't agree more. And that's one of the reasons really that I started this podcast was I wanted to talk to people about wealth and investing and, you know, good habits that can help you improve your life in the future and, and today. 
Um, but I didn't want it to just be a show about investing where we're sitting here examining companies and talking mm. about PD ratios and all these things. I wanted it to connect, um, you know, back to life and living and, and how to be, be happier. And I think that was what I found so um, just compelling about your book was you managed to talk about investing in a way that could be really uh, helpful to someone, even if they never started investing after reading the book, because there are so many just tidbits in there and, and good behaviors that are good for investing tend to be good behaviors for other areas of life. I, I think so. If you, I, I write a lot about habits in the book. There's a there's a chapter called I think high performance habits, and I and I focus a lot on this guy Tom Gaynor, who's very remarkable, who who's the co CEO of Markel. That was a and fascinating I, chapter, by the oh, way. Oh, thanks. And I, I was very struck by how the way the way he ran the business and the way he invested and the way he lived his life were totally consistent. And and one of the things that he was doing that made me think. Oh yeah, it's actually it's actually true that the way you operate in business and investing can help you in other areas of life. Was that he was thinking really consciously about picking a, a number of habits that he described as directionally correct. They weren't necessarily the optimal habits, but he was saying m- when people try to be optimal, um, they tend to screw up because that's not sustainable. So he said, if I just pick some directionally correct habits. And just keep plugging away for decades doing the right thing. It kind of is going to work out really well in the long run. And so he he would take this approach to things like exercise, where he would he he started off. I mean, he was kind of he was kind of becoming a little tubby as I as I had as well. So this was a subject that we were enjoying discussing. So it was relevant to both of us. He he'd sort of drifted north of two hundred pounds, and he he led this kind of sedentary life, and he decides. I'm just going to lose one pound a year for 10 years. And most people would look at that and say it's absurdly unambitious. But if you think about middle-aged men like myself, we tend to put on one or two pounds every year. And 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 because of compounding, um, when, when your weight is going against you year after year, it ends up being c- catastrophic. But if you have a marginal improvement, like you lose a pound a year instead of gaining a pound or two a year, it also adds up beautifully, and so he applied a similar uh, a similar approach to the way he eats. So he said, when when he was a kid, he, he he has a very colorful way of talking. He said he had the the eating habits of a campground raccoon, and so he <laughs> said he would eat he would eat like two hundred donuts a year. And so he said, I'm not trying to be perfect, but he said if I can eat twenty donuts a year instead of two hundred, that's pretty good. It's directionally correct. And what's interesting to me is he takes exactly the same approach to investing. So at a certain point, he said, well, I can't ignore these companies like, like Amazon and Google and Facebook anymore. You know, they're clearly, they're clearly so dominant and, and they're extraordinary businesses. And so he started to buy them, but he didn't go crazy. It was directionally correct. He bought a certain amount and he bought them at a pretty good valuation. Um, it wasn't incredibly cheap. It wasn't incredibly expensive, but it was directionally correct. And then he just holds for many years. And so he's just built this kind of very patient way of investing that's directionally correct. This very patient, directionally correct way of exercising, eating. And and so that sort of thing, I, I love that when you find a principle, a way of operating that works both in investing and life. It makes me think, oh, well, this this is probably true. This is probably powerful if it if it applies in all of these different areas. 
that was when I actually the the um, directionally correct concept was when I actually had uh, in my notes to to, to talk to you about mm-hmm. because. I think it's one of the things, and there there are many concepts and, and kind of different pieces of advice in the book that I uh, am looking to improve on. That was one I actually, when I think about different things, that's one I actually feel like I've done pretty well. I tend to, mm-hmm. you know, I've always been pretty consistent when it comes to working out. When I do gain a little weight, I usually get on top of it pretty quickly and I don't do, you know, fad diets. I just try to mm. eat healthy because I've found, like you said, it's hard to sustain habits like that for long periods of time. So that's one thing I, that I, it really resonated because I had never heard a term put to that idea. And it's one where I was like, Hey, you know, I think I do a pretty, pretty decent job of that. And I think it's true across really anything you're trying to achieve, whether it's an in investing and, or, or, or any other job or, or anything else, staying steady and being directionally correct and staying kind of on the path, even if it's, it's not perfect, um, will, yeah, will generally had, lead to great, you know, returns or, or he, outcomes. He had a beautiful, a beautiful term for this where he, he said, he said to me, I'm radically moderate. And I thought that was really interesting. Like he wasn't trying to be extreme. He wasn't trying to be, you know, uh, a decathlete or or an iron man guy or something you know he was just he he was just trying to trying to stay fit stay healthy he would he would regularly go to church he would pray he had a good community he had a really good relationship with his wife and kids he was living within his means he was doing all of these things that were kind of directionally correct for him right mm-hmm. like he he got kind of you know he got some some strength from his faith that helped him in times that were difficult. He was philanthropic. He was, there were all of these ways in which he was just kind of trying to be a really good person and, and kind of balanced in a holistic way. And there was a beautiful phrase that that was shared with me by another great investor that I that I write about, a guy called Nick Sleep, very remarkable guy, who who was really into cycling. And what and and Nick Sleep talked about the aggregation of marginal gains, which is a very, which is a very fa- fancy sounding term. But if you unpack it, what he's basically saying is there are all of these places, all of these habits that give you a marginal advantage, right? You eat well consistently. It's a marginal advantage. You exercise consistently. It's a marginal advantage. You meditate every day, 12 minutes a day, 10 minutes a day. It's a marginal advantage. It, it, it doesn't, none of these things seem that big a deal on the day, but it's the aggregation of all of these marginal gains. It's it's when you combine them all that they become very powerful. And then when you combine them all over decades, it's unstoppable. So, so if you want to become a, a fitter, healthier, calmer, calmer human being, to do things like exercise, meditate, do yoga, eat well, we kind of we know these things. <laughs> but part of the problem in life is that we're wired to want these very short-term rewards. And so it's much, I'm much more cheerful eating four pieces of toast than I am getting on the Peloton bike, right? It's, it's like, it gives me that short-term, short-term pleasure. And so part of the trick I think is, and, and I write about this a lot in writing about Nick's sleep, is that you have to be willing to, to defer gratification and to say, well, there are all of these habits that if I stick at them, over many years, they're unstoppable. And so I think, I think what you want to do both in investing and life is to, is to look, at, look at the destination you want to reach and then, and then kind of reverse from there and say, okay, so what are, what are the inputs I need to get to this really desirable destination? And so you can apply this approach to everything in life. So 
So you could say, uh, th- there's a really interesting um, doctor whose name I'll probably mispronounce, a guy called Peter Atia, A-T-T-I-A, who talks about the centenarian Olympics. And so he's saying, okay, if I'm going to live to 100, what do I want to be like at 100? I want to be strong. I want to be flexible. Uh, I want to be able to pick up my grandkids, my great grandkids. I want to be able to carry stuff up the stairs, uh, all, all of these different things. So what are the inputs that are required now? as a guy probably in his 40s or 50s to get him to that to that state. Likewise, if you think about your finances, I want to be financially independent and secure, right? I don't need to be worth $50 million. I don't need to be, you know, um, flying on, a, a, on my own private plane. I just don't give a damn about that. But I don't want to be working for people I dislike. Uh, that's really important to me. I don't want to have the financial insecurity of worrying about the next bill, um, of worrying about whether I can support my kids or my wife or help, you know, pay for my kids' college. So, so if the destination is to buy, is to be financially secure and independent, then you have to kind of reverse from that and say, what are the inputs to get there? And so, when I ask someone like Tom Gainer, the co CEO of Markel, how do you get rich? If you're a regular person, how do you get to that state? He said, well. It's really simple. You you live within your means and you invest what's left over at a positive rate of return. And he said, if you do that, you can't fail to to become rich. It's like that that's key. So you've got to live within your means and, and invest and ride the upward trajectory of the stock market over time. And and he also added, he said something really lovely that I thought was really profound, where he said, he said, in fact, if you're living within your means already. He said, you're already rich. Right. And, and, and there was a wonderful thing where he said, this is a guy, I mean, Tom, Tom Gain is friends with people like, you know, Buffett, who he sat on the board of the Washington Post company with for years. And so he knows some of the richest people in the world, right? And he said to me, he said his father was the richest man he ever met. And he said, that's a psychological statement. Uh, mm. he, he said his father basically owned, I think, a 100-acre farm in Salem, New York, and he said he he did a few real estate deals that were pretty small. You know, he wasn't, you, you know, and I think he was an accountant, if I remember rightly. He, he, he was a chartered accountant, did people's tax returns and the like. And he didn't need grand cars. He didn't need a super grand house. He was just really happy with what he had. And I think that's a, so I think you sort of have to think about the destination, how you, what you regard as, as rich, and what you regard as enough. These fairly simple ideas, like, Living within your means, socking away money, um, investing at a positive rate of return. If you get the big things right like that, um, it, 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 you, you, you're going to win the game over time. But it requires you not to do anything super stupid and self-destructive along the way. Yeah, the uh, aggregation of marginal gains, I think, is a really uh, interesting way of putting that. It really reminds me of that quote. People overestimate what can be achieved in a year and underestimate what can be achieved in a lifetime. And I think yeah. that goes back to so much of what you said about um, instant gratification and, and all of these things. But on the the chapter um, uh, about um, Nick and Zach and, mm. and um, their fund and how they um, you kind of talk about how they did things differently and and how that led to their success. You summarize some, some points that you thought uh, their, the reader can can uh, learn from them. And in the, the fifth one, I believe was about uh, delayed gratification. 
And you summarized it this way, which I thought was truly uh, just fascinating. In a world that's increasingly geared towards short-termism and instant gratification, a tremendous advantage can be gained by those who consistently move in the opposite direction. This applies not only to business, but to our relationships, health, careers, and everything else that matters. And I couldn't agree more with that, that statement, really. Yeah, and it's such a simple idea, and yet it's so profound. Because if, if think, think about going back thousands of years, right? Like if you, if you look even at the Old Testament, whether you regard the Old Testament as literally true or just sort of metaphorically and re- re- really important lessons encoded, encoded in these old stories, these ideas go all the way back to Genesis, right? Like you have, you have, um, was it, was it Esau who traded his birthright for a, for a bowl of lentil soup? And, you know, you have, you have Joseph who became basically like the, the, having got out of this dungeon where he'd been thrown unjustly, he, he becomes, you know, number two to Pharaoh and is in charge of their financial supplies. And during the good seven years, he, he socks away all of this grain for the seven-year drought that comes later and so manages to save the entire country. So this idea of instant gratification versus delayed gratification goes back thousands and thousands of years, right? We've, we've always known, like in, it, I think often with many of the truths in life, we kind of know them already, right? They're sort of hardwired into it. So you sort of know, okay, during the good times, let me not overreach. Let me sock away some money for when things turn, for during the difficult periods. And so I think just keeping that eye on the long term, on 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 your destination, um, and what's going to help you reach that destination is really really valuable. And and there's a there's a, a a very short section of that chapter on Nick and Zach, uh, who is his partner, Nick Sleep's partner, um, Case Sakaria, where. I talk about this this wonderful phrase that that Nick used, which is destination analysis, where he's, he applied this idea both to his own life but also to businesses. Where you're saying, okay, let's let's think about what the desirable destination is. Let, let's say you're analyzing a company. He would look at a company like Amazon or Costco, which became enormous holdings of his that that made him an absolute fortune. And he said, what's a desirable destination for this business in 10, 15, 20 years? And are they doing the things that will get them to that destination? So, for example, you look at Costco and they would mark their products up something like 14%. So if you're a supermarket and you're marking it up 35%, um, you're just giving your customer a much less good deal. And so Costco just kept giving its customers a better and better deal instead of lining its own pockets in the short term. And so Wall Street, which is really keen on maximizing short-term profits, uh, uh, Wall Street's not very into deferred gratification. Wall Street <laughs> kept saying to Costco, no, no, make more money now, raise your margins. And what Nick and Zach realized is, no, here's a company that's prepared to sacrifice its short-term profits to keep giving its customers a better and better deal. And in the long run, that pays off. And if you look at Amazon, they did the same thing. Amazon kept giving you a better and better deal. So you get your stuff incredibly quickly. It's a really good deal. It tends to be very cheap. And then they kept adding in new benefits. So, so they're like, yeah, you want to store your photos free you, with Amazon Prime? You want free delivery in two days? Okay, we'll give you that. You want, you, you want TV shows? Okay, we'll give you that. Um, movies? Yeah, we'll give you that. So they just keep giving you a better and better deal. So in a sense, that's a really beautiful example of a company 
that's delaying gratification, that's, that's saying, well, we're prepared to give up short-term profits to reach a long-term destination that's really desirable. And so Nick and Zach were investing in a way that tapped into this kind of master principle of deferring gratification, of focusing on the long-term instead of the short-term. But then you can apply that idea of destination analysis in your own life. So you can literally say, if so I'm 52 years old, I'm about to turn 53, and I have two kids, right, a 20-year-old and a 23-year-old, and I've got a lovely wife I've been married to for, I don't know, 28 years, something like that. So um, I, I should remember that. I'm blaming that on the bourbon. Um, but but so the destination, let's let's say – whether you believe in an afterlife or not, let's say let's say you don't believe in an afterlife, but the destination is is my funeral, not to be too macabre and morbid about this. How are my kids and my wife going to remember me? Will they will they think of me fondly? Will they think that I led a good life? Will they be impressed that I made an extra hundred thousand dollars or that I screwed somebody to to get the better out of them on a deal? No, they're going to remember whether I treated them decently, how I behaved with other people, whether I helped people, whether I was kind. And so if you look, if you if you take this long term approach and you think about the destination, desirable destinations for your life, for your for your health, for your relationships, for your finances, it's incredibly clarifying because then you can work backwards and say, well, let, let, let me not do this dumb short term thing. Like, like if if I if I um, drive drunk, for example, or if I go, you know, Tom Tom Gannett gave me this very good um, very good example where he said, look, if 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 I go, Tom Gannett is very happily married to this woman who started dating when they were fifteen years old, I think. Um, they, they went to the the custard stand on their first date in Salem, New York, uh, driven by their parents, and and he said, if I go to a bar and I'm not with my wife, I need to be radically moderate. And it's okay for me to drink two drinks, not 10, because if I drink lots of drinks, I'm vulnerable to really dumb behavior. And so he knows that if that, that, that if he wants to make sure that, that he behaves in a moral, decent way, has a good marriage, has good relationships, he's got to avoid these really stupid behaviors. And, and and he's got to adopt positive behaviors that compound over time. His results compound over time. Um, those are really simple filters, really simple ways to think about your life and your behavior. And I, I think they're very clarifying and, and they really run through everything, whether it's the way you manage your money or the way you manage your relationships. Well, Tom Gaynor and I have something in common. I also started dating my wife at 15. So, mm. so that's really cool. Where did you take her on the first date? Ooh, you know, that's a great question. And I probably should know that it was, if I had to guess, it was probably to this Mexican restaurant, uh, Casa Fiesta down the, down the street from, we lived in the same neighborhood. So, um, this is in Kentucky. This is, yeah, it's in Frankfort, Kentucky, just, uh, you know, 30 minutes from, from here in Lexington. So we've, yeah, we've been together for, for, for a long time and, I'm going to have to think about where that first date actually was. Yeah. Uh, I guarantee you she'll remember. So Yeah. My well, my <laughs> first date, my first date was the only blind date I had ever been on. And and it it lasted about 9 hours. We went to meet for a drink and it lasted about 9 hours. And our second date lasted about 2 days. And our, <laughs> and within about 2 weeks we were living together. 
It was wow. very, very, it was very quick. When you um, know, you know, sometimes. Yeah. And I was so shocked that anyone was willing to date me. You know, I, I was <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not letting this, this wonderful person go. So yeah, but it, but, and, and actually I remember Tom Gainer talking about, about marriage and he had, he had, he, he, he was talking, he, he was talking about this in a very rational and pragmatic way as well. Where he, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to misquote him, but, but it was, it was, it was really interesting to see that even, even the way he thought about marriage was totally consistent with the way he thought about investing habits, um, being, being radically moderate. Um, he was like, you know, if, if you have a good wife, why, or if you're dating someone who's really good, why would you be looking around for something better? You're unlikely to find something better. You, sh- you know, if you find something good, you, you plug away and you, you don't have to be optimal. Uh, it was, yeah. a, I've never heard anyone talk about relationships in quite the same way. It's very interesting. That is a l- little bit strange, but but I think 100% true. And just to give you a sense of how much I rely on my wife and how much good she does for me, I'm looking right on my wall. I, I've got an ideal daily schedule that she printed for me that she picked up from like the male hormonal cha- you know, changes throughout the day. So like wow. this is supposed to give me – so like you know, 7, 7 a.m. Is, is working out, which for me is is tennis or rowing. Not, you know, uh, nine to 10 is the best time for deep thought and reflection. So that's when I should do like the deepest financial planning and 11 to noon is good for creativity. Um, so that's when I would do like writing and marketing and things like that and on and on. So meetings are better in the afternoon, um, because that's a good time for social interaction. So, so I rely on my wife literally for, for everything I do. Um, so it's, it's important. (laughs) I think all of all of these ideas of how you how you manage the scarce resource of your time is it's a really important subject. And I and I, I'm if you if you think about the great investors, they're kind of the ultimate um, rationalists and pragmatists. And so they'll they'll take anything that works. And so they've actually thought really deeply about these ideas of how to maximize your time. And and so a lot of it, I think, is is stripping away unnecessary stuff that's yeah. that's a distraction. And so there's a there's a there's a wonderful um, discussion that I had with Nick Sleep about um, about the type of information that he focused on, for example. And so he he said that most people are focusing on information that has a really short shelf life, as he put it, that's perishable information. And and so he wanted to spend a lot of his time focusing on things with a long shelf life, information with a long shelf life. So, for example, he would actually not only structure his time that way, where he could be reading books and traveling to visit companies and like, but he even structured his physical environment to help him do the things that would matter. So, so he put his Bloomberg terminal on a low stool, basically on a low side table without a chair. I love that. Yeah, that's physically uncomfortable. So, so Zach, his partner said at a certain point, you'd be like, ow, my back's hurting. And so, so you just would move away from the Bloomberg terminal, which was giving you all of this short-term price information. And I mean, it's a powerful tool, but it's, um, it can be very addictive and, and it's making it, and it flashes all of, all of these numbers at you in multicolors that are, that are like a call to action. And, and so if you, if you look at, Nick and Zach and the way that they invest, it's much more long-term, much more simple. And, and they've invested, I mean, now they, they, they closed down the hedge fund and returned all the money and just, just invest their own money now. 
and they've owned personally and in the fund Amazon for 16 years and counting and, and Costco for 18 years and counting. And so if you think about how they've structured their lives just to be thoughtful, long-term, to focus. So, so when they were focusing on things like, is this business going to reach the long-term destination that's desirable? They've really applied that, right? Here they are 18 years later. And I've, I've right. tried to do that in my own investing life. There's a, a fund that I've invested in um, run by a friend of mine who's, who is a hedge fund manager called Guy Spear, who I helped write his autobiography, The Educational Value Investor. I've invested in that so far, I think, for 20, 20 21 years. And I often say to Guy, this is a 40-year investment for me. And so just that awareness that you want to shift away from that kind of short-term behavior that most people are engaging in, where they own a fund for a year or they, they buy a stock and they trade it you know, after a day or a week or a month. One of the, one of the things that I try and, and constantly fail to do, but I'm very conscious of trying to do, is I literally say if I'm, if I'm buying an investment – I'm not allowed to sell it for five years. And I, I recently violated it and sold a stock that I probably only owned for three years. But um, I think that just that idea of trying to trying to force yourself systematically to be more long-term, more patient, slower moving, focus on, on the things that really matter instead of the really ephemeral short-term stuff. Yeah. I, I, this stuff, it's not rocket science investing. It's like pretty, pretty simple, right? You, you don't need to overcomplicate it. If if you get the big things right and you stay in the market and you're patient and you keep your expenses down and you ride the gradual upward trajectory of the market, uh, uh, which which tends to go up over time because um, companies become more productive, the economy becomes more productive, the population grows, it over time it's gone up despite all of these dips. So if you just... If you just plug away patiently and hold your stocks for the long term and don't trade in and out and don't panic at the worst times and you in when when the market goes down you add rather than panic and sell everything get get those basic things right and and live within your means you're pretty much golden you don't need to overcomplicate the game too much I agree I mean that's the biggest concept that I talk to my clients about is you know, yes, what we're invested in is part of it, but the most important part is doing the simple things and avoiding the destructive behaviors that'll, that'll really, you know, crush, crush the goals long-term things like getting in and out of the market and panicking when things are, are getting bumpy because of, you know, geopolitical, Mm. uh, you know, events and things like that. It's just, it's, that is not, uh, it's counterproductive to your long-term goals and getting people to, agree to that is one thing getting yeah. them to stick with that when it when they're in the chaos yeah. is another thing but it's something i i try to do all the time i i think it really helps if if investors understand the basic rules of the game so they know here's here's what works here's what doesn't work there's a there's a beautiful line from charlie munger where he said i observe what works and what doesn't work and why and so once you know that it's a real benefit to be patient and to own stocks for the long term. It makes a huge difference. Once, once you know just how much high expenses, high fees and taxes erode your returns, you're like, oh, well, that's totally simplifying. So let me make sure that I'm maxing out on my 401k, my IRA, 529 plans for my kids' education. 
these yep. things that are these things that have real tax benefits. And so for me, with with something again, this is about being directionally correct. So when I look at Guy Spears fund that I invest in, I I know that he's not going to be the best performer. Um, he's not going to take wild risk, but he's going to survive. And I know that he's got all of his family's money in the fund alongside me. So there's an alignment of interests. So sure. I think these basic understandings of like, is is the person managing your money? To, uh, are they aligned with your interests? Like, are they overcharging you? Are they fair? Um, are they honorable? Um, because I need to keep my expenses down. I can't control what's going to happen with COVID. I can't control what's going to happen with the global economy. I don't know. What, the, the US government had no idea what was going to happen in Afghanistan when they pulled out. Why the hell should I be able to predict anything? <laughs> right. I can control my own behavior to some degree, just knowing that, for example, when the market gets hit, I should not be stupid and trade in and out and panic. So maybe I won't have the courage and the fortitude and the conviction to buy more in those times, but at least let me not be stupid and sell. And so that means I, so if I, if I get those big things right, over time, I'm going to do fine. And right. so again, it's just being directionally correct in all of these ways. But I, I think to do that, you you have to read and understand and internalize a few of these simple rules. And it's it, it, so so. I mean, I think it's I think it's helpful to read my book from a purely selfish point of view because I've distilled a lot of ideas from from great investors. But I would also say, if if you read stuff that people like Joel Greenblatt have written or Howard Marks or uh, or Buffett, or uh, they, these people, they're incredibly generous in sharing their, their ideas about what works. There's a wonderful book by Joel Greenblatt that that he he wrote for his five children to explain how to how to win as an investor. Um, what's called the, the the little book that beats the market, and it's just a really simple, well written, really elegant book um, that that explains what to. How, how to invest in stocks or you read something like unshakable by tony robbins that also lays out a lot of this stuff or you read jack bogle's books the founder of, of vanguard and right. I, I think you 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 want to understand the simple principles because then when times get rocky you sort of you're like oh okay i knew it was going to get rocky at some point now now it's it's sort of like like if you were in an airplane and there was sudden, suddenly incredible turbulence and you'd never experienced it before, you'd be like, holy shit, what am I going to do? The plane's going to crash. <laughs> and when you've been through it before, you're like, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm in a plane and there's turbulence. And, right. and so you're like, OK, let me sit tight. Let me breathe deeply. And, and so I think, I think just understanding the simple, basic rules of investing enables you to keep your cool a little better uh, through, through those inevitable dips and uh, times of volatility. William, I couldn't talk to you today without bringing up Arnold Vandenberg because mm. I find that story, um, his story, to be so incredibly inspirational. And I think it's it got this incredible juxtaposition of kind of the worst of humanity and the best of humanity. And in this particular story, good wins, good prevails. Mm. I didn't know of Arnold Vandenberg until I read the book and, and heard you speak about him. Can you just tell, you know, a little bit about who he is? Because I'm not sure a lot of people have heard that story. Yeah, I, I very consciously decided from the beginning, I think, that I was going to end the book with Arnold Vandenberg because I wanted to say to people, 
what actually constitutes a truly successful and truly abundant, truly prosperous life. And when I look at Arnold, I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's about as close as you get. And part of what's so striking about Arnold is that he, he was dealt the worst possible hand of anyone. So if you look at a lot of the great investors, they went to Wharton or Harvard Business School or Yale. You know, they were super smart. They, they had loving parents. They were given great educations. They have really high IQs. Um, in, a, in a sense, they were born pretty close to the finish line already. Whereas right. Arnold was born as a, into a Jewish family during the Holocaust in Amsterdam on the same street as Anne Frank. And so he spent the first couple of years of his life in hiding behind a fake wall in the house of, of a family called the Bunts, um, a Christian family who hid his parents and him and his brother Sigmund. And at a certain point, his parents realized that if Sigmund or Arnold cried while the house was being searched by Nazis, they would all get killed. They would basically be taken to Auschwitz and the women and kids were the first to get killed. And so they took this desperate gamble where they, they got in touch with the Dutch underground and a 17 year old girl who didn't know the family risked her own life basically to smuggle Arnold out of Amsterdam across the countryside into a rural orphanage where he spent the next few years of his life. And so, so Arnold basically virtually starved in the orphanage. And so, I mean, they had no food at all. And by, by the, by the time he was about six, he said to me that, he he couldn't even walk. He he basically was shuffling along on his knees, and mm. and his parents were both sent to Auschwitz and amazingly survived. And they came to pick him up when he was six, and he didn't even recognize them. And he and he said, "I didn't care. I just was so desperate to get out of there. I would have gone with anyone." And his dad was scared to pick him up because he was so fragile. I mean, he was just skin and bones and would have died a few months later. And so he starts with the worst possible life, right? And he, he, he felt that he had actually been abandoned by his parents. He felt that his mom didn't want him. He didn't understand emotionally that they had to send him and Sigmund away. Um, so he felt abandoned. He was separated from Sigmund, his brother, who stayed on a, on a farm with this couple who, who were, were childless and adopted him and looked after him. So he was separated from everyone he loved, had no food. Years later, heard a, heard a psychologist speaking with his mother and saying, yeah, well, we think the reason he's doing so badly at school, maybe it's because he was malnourished as a child and has brain damage. So he grew up thinking he was stupid and full of rage and anger and resentment against the Nazis for what they did and, and bitterness. And, and his first wife left him, so he was full of resentment towards her, had a terrible relationship with his parents, so full of resentment to them, and yet somehow managed to transform himself over the years into this incredibly kind, loving, decent bloke. And so one of the things that I think is so extraordinary about Arnold that, that, that I, I, I want to convey in, in the last part of the book is that he took control of the inner landscape of his life. He took control of his thoughts and emotions. And this is critical because you can have a billion dollars, but if you're miserable, if you're full of rage or resentment or self-pity or, or envy or whatever, you, you have a miserable life. And Arnold has just become this very loving, kind, compassionate, philanthropic, decent bloke. He, I talked to him the other day. He, he was 82 yesterday. And so mm -hmm. I talked to him earlier in the week and he was, he was saying to me, yeah, I'm coming up to my 50th wedding, wedding anniversary. And he said, 
And he was talking to me about how you can sometimes, if you're really sensitive, you can tell from somebody's voice what they're like. And he said, yeah, the first time I talked to my wife, Eileen, on the phone, I knew from that moment what a wonderful human being she was. And so he's got this wow. amazing relationship <laughs> with his wife, who's this lovely, lovely human being. Amazing relationship with with um, uh, the, his his son, who's the president of his company. I mean, it's it's really lovely to see them together. So you see the relationships. Then you see... I, I mean, I haven't of, of all the things I've told you told you about him. The one thing we haven't mentioned is how rich he is or how successful he is in the investment business, right? Like that's not right. the important thing. But he built this incredibly successful investment business with this great record. Uh, he he averaged something like fourteen and a half percent for thirty eight years before hitting a kind of wow. rocky patch um, a few years ago, where, where he 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 made this very contrarian bet on on oil stocks, energy stocks that that now is starting to pay off, but it was a very hard time for him. But the most important thing wasn't the money. I mean, he, he at one point, I, I, I think he was, lots of people were trying to buy his company at his peak. And he was like, why would I sell my company to people who are going to take advantage of my clients? He's, he's like, I'd rather close it down than make $100 million selling the company. So he was very ethical, very decent, very common sense investor. He taught himself to invest without, he, he barely made it through high school. Uh, he didn't go to college. He taught himself to invest by studying Ben Graham and 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 learning all these common sense rules about buying things cheap. And he was very disciplined, very ethical, and he, and and so in some ways, I just regard him as a really wonderful example of a life well lived. He's someone who's surrounded by people who love and admire him. Uh, I keep getting letters from people saying, "Oh, Arnold did this to help me," or "Oh, I've been a client of Arnold's for so many years, and I'm so happy that I met him." everyone you meet is is um happy to have arnold in their life and so and and i am too i mean he's he's been an incredible force for good in my own life and so so that's why i end the book writing about him is is because i feel like he's um he embodies a kind of deep wisdom and in fact i i sort of wonder if I, i'm i'm just dipping into the books on my shelf i wonder i wonder if i could find a passage if i can find it really quickly because when I looked at this, I've written about all of these incredibly smart people. And there was something that I read recently in my book from him. It's one paragraph that's a quote from him. And I was like, this is deep wisdom. Here's, here's a guy who's kind of figure, figured out life. So I'll read you this one paragraph. Um, actually, I'll read you two paragraphs. So that's okay. Once, once he felt completely secure about his financial future, no amount of money he could earn would make any difference to him. I'm the richest guy in the world because I'm content with what I have, says Vandenberg. I feel wealthier, not because I have more money, but because I've got health, good friendships. I've got a great family. Prosperity takes all of these things into consideration. Health, wealth, happiness, peace of mind. That's what a prosperous person is, not just a lot of money. That doesn't mean anything. He recalls a former client with $10 million who was so eager for the money that he would call me collect to save a few cents. The most important thing people need is love, says Vandenberg. And the less love they have, the more they need these material things. They look for money, for some accomplishment or something external to validate them. But all they need to do is be loved and to give love. You know, my wife never knows how much money we have. She never cares and she never thinks about it other than how she could use it to spend it on somebody else. So mm, you read that and you think, incredible. That's, that's a guy with deep wisdom and so, so for me, he's a he's a role model in life. He's and and I look outside in my garden and I see a trampoline that he sent me, and I look around my study where I'm 
at the moment and I see books that he sent me. And this is a guy, his, his hobby is to send people books because he says with a, with a book, you can actually change somebody's life. And he's like, what could be better than that? And so he's someone who, yeah, he's been financially successful and he's become financially secure, but it's, it's, it's nothing compared to, I think the satisfaction of, of becoming a really extraordinary human being who's been a force for good in other people's lives. And I, I think there's a kind of, there's something really inspiring about his story because he started in such a terrible position that if he could play that terrible hand so well that he's become this loving, kind, decent bloke with great relationships and financial security, I look at myself and I'm like, well, I, I had loving parents and I had a great education and, uh, you know, I, what can't I do in life? Like surely. So, so there are times where I get despondent and I think oh, I, can't, I can't do this and it's so hard and poor me. And then I think of Arnold and I'm like, what the hell am I talking about? Like, like Arnold yeah. could transform himself. And, and one of the things that he did, he, he became obsessed with things like affirmations and um, uh, self-hypnosis he would literally, he would go around saying all the time, I'm a loving person. I'm a loving man. And so he, he basically, he kind of rewired himself. So instead of going around full of rage and resentment about the Nazis or, uh, which was totally justified. Or, Absolutely. Absolutely. Or, yeah. Or full of rage against his first wife who left him for another man or, uh, you know, he, he just transformed himself to being more loving and kinder. And I, that to me, it taps into one of the great secrets of life, which is that I think when we're focused on ourselves, when we're just thinking, how do I maximize my money, my wealth, my success, my reputation, um, my luxury, all of these things, it's, you know, there's this beautiful phrase that psychologists use, behavioral psychologists, the hedonic treadmill, right? It's like this, this treadmill of hedonism. It's like more me, me, me. And it's just like, once you bought the first Ferrari, you know, what do you do? Is the second one going to give you pleasure? Is it, it's just this, this treadmill where it, it all loses its excitement at a certain point. And I think one of the great truths that Arnold has tapped into and embodies is that he's tremendously sharing. And when you, when you focus on making other people's lives better, there's this great paradox that your own life becomes much happier. And so I see I see the amount of joy he gets from trying to help other people. And that to me, again, like, like most of the great truths in life, it's pretty simple, right? It's, it's, it goes back to what we said at the start of the, uh, the conversation, that intelligent people are always looking for really complicated solutions. It's like, no, be more loving, be kinder. And, you know, stop telling yourself, you, you know, giving yourself messages that fill you with, with resentment and a sense of victimization. Instead, he's, He's constantly telling himself, no, no, like I, I'm loving. And and even he told me something really wonderful the other day. Every time I talked to Arnold, I, I learned something new. He told me that it, it, I, I guess he's working mostly at home at the moment um, because it's harder to work in the office during COVID. And, and so he has this study downstairs in his house. And he said one wall of it is just full of pictures of people who's, who've influenced him and helped him in his life. And he said when he doesn't have a picture of them, he'll write their name there and put it on the wall. And so he's just reminding himself all the time. It's a physical cue to remind himself all the people who've helped him, all the people who've played a part in making him who he is today. 
And just think about that compared to all of the sense of victimization that other people have and that it would be justified to have. He's, he's reminding himself constantly of the people who helped him. Amazing. I think it's a great idea. Um, and, and I think it's just a, a, another simple but brilliant uh, way where you can kind of rethink how you how you view life and, and, and hopefully come out of that with not only a better situation for yourself, but, but the others around you. And I've never talked to Arnold. I would absolutely love to talk to him sometime. I think that uh, he's just um, just brilliant and and could learn a lot from speaking with him. But, um, you know, I see him as a role model and I've never talked to the guy. Absolutely. And uh, I see you as a role model uh, uh, just, thank you. just from reading the book and talking to you. So if you I saw really... my behavior, you'd be less convinced. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> but That's uh, the beauty of it. I don't have to. Yeah, but, it's true. But it, but the thing I console myself with is if it's directionally correct, then that's OK, too. So, mm-hmm. so I screw up the whole time and I do stuff that I'm not proud of, uh, but, but then I can remind myself, well, no, it's just about being directionally correct over the long term. And, yeah. and there's a really um, beautiful idea. Munger is very close to this guy, Peter Kaufman, who's a very extraordinary thinker who runs a, a company called Glen Eyre. And, and Peter Kaufman basically says that the most powerful force in life is dogged incremental progress over time. It's kind of it's evolution, right? You're just you're just trying to make dogged incremental progress over time. So I can screw up as much as I want, um, hopefully less and less. But uh, so long as I'm making incremental progress over time, that's pretty good. And and Arnold said to me once, "I'm going to be working on self improvement until the day that I die." And there's something really lovely about that. Like here's this guy, who's 82 years old, has done so much work on himself, and he's still trying to improve the whole time. And, and he'll call you and he'll say, yeah, I figured out something really important about the subconscious mind, about how to, how to reprogram <laughs> the subconscious mind. And he's like, yeah, it's taken me 45 years really to figure this out. And 45 years studying the subconscious mind. And there's something really wonderful about that. When you see someone like that working continuously to improve, you're like, oh, well, that, that's pretty inspiring. Let, 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 let me be better at yeah. um, uh, let me be continuously working that and in fact it's I, i'll just give you one one final story after after i talked to him the other day this gives you this gives you an example how important it is to have good role models good examples in life so he was talking to me about how he used to get um in fights the whole time when he first moved to east los angeles and he was this very kind of emaciated kid in a really tough neighborhood in East Los Angeles. He used to get beaten up a lot. I mean, the, his first day at school, his mom dressed him in like lederhosen and like impeccable clothes and he got beaten up at school oh, like three times. And Poor kid. I, unbelievable. And I, when he first told me that, I burst out laughing and I felt very guilty. <laughs> and, and then and then he, um, so so he was telling me that he, he got in this fight that really changed his life where someone beat him up really badly. I write about this in the book. Someone beat him up really badly and he offered no resistance. And when he got home, he looked at himself in the mirror and he's like covered in blood and just totally beaten up. And he, and he's like, well, actually that wasn't so bad. He's like, he's like, I was so terrified. He said, I, he said, I wouldn't have been more terrified if they put me in front of the firing squad. And, and I offered no resistance. And then he thought, well, so, I'm going to offer resistance in future. And so the worst thing that had happened, the thing he was terrified of being beaten up happened. And then he was like, so, so actually the thing, the, the real problem was the fear 
And so he said, once once you overcome the fear, he said, he said, really what you discover is the after the first four or five punches, you don't even really feel it. He said, the body kind of shuts down and you don't even feel the pain that much. And so he said, so he said, I stopped being frightened and then I started to fight back. And so he became kind of this fearsome fighter. And so he was talking to me about fear and how the real problem was fear. And this sounds like such a minor example, but I'm I'm in this kind of Peloton bike competition, right? And there's this ride that's just like brutal. It was like the worst ride in this six-week competition. And I and I was gonna avoid doing it because I'd done two rides the day before that were like an hour long and 45 minutes long, and I was just knackered. And I talked to Arnold and I'm like, ah shit, I'm gonna go do this bloody ride that I really don't want to do, that I was really afraid of because it was gonna be painful. And I just spent the whole time thinking about like leaning into the discomfort and being kind of comfortable with the discomfort. And it became kind of this weirdly joyful thing. And that was entirely inspired by the fact that Arnold had just talked to me about how he learned to deal with his own fear. And and it's just a really small example. But when you pick good role models, they help you in so many ways, right? You, You Buffett always talks about how he was really blessed by his heroes, that they just taught him everything, whether it's his father, who he admired hugely, or Ben Graham, who was his great teacher. And one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is is to is to help you find good role models where and they're good role models for me, right? I mean, I'm 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 doing personal therapy. I'm not just sharing these ideas. I'm I'm looking at these people. And I'm saying, yeah, I, I want to be more like Arnold. I want to become more loving. I want to become kinder. I want to deal with my fear better, uh, my anxiety better. Become more sharing, um, more philanthropic. And and I think when you pick really good role models. It just gives you this tremendous guidance. It's 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 like um, uh, to Manish Parabrai, one of the people I write about, uses the phrase "bowling with bumpers." Right when you have the bumpers on the side of the the right. bowling alley, so your ball is less likely to you know go go the wrong direction down the down the 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 shoot. Um, having really good um, role models, whether it's a Tom Gaynor or a Nick Sleep or a, a Charlie Munger or an Arnold Vandenberg, gives you a tremendous advantage. It is like like rolling with bumpers. You're like, oh, well, let me not do that, at least. Let me let me not screw up in that way. I can see from their lives, this is what works. Uh, well, and I, I do want help. people to know, it's it's not as if the book presents these um, all of these men um, as these just perfectly moral and ethical people who never screw up. I mean, I, d- yeah. I don't want people to avoid the book thinking like, this is where yeah. I'm going to be preached at for, for yeah. the length of the book. You talk about, and they, are, they share... Um, many of the trials and tribulations and, and turmoil that they found themselves in personally and professionally. So I just wanted to make that yeah. clear. No, we're, d- we're all, A, we're all deeply flawed and they're no exception. And and B, I make it really clear that you need tremendous resilience, both in investing in life. And I make it really clear what what a lot of these people have gone through. You you look at like someone, someone, someone like Charlie Munger, right, who has an enormously successful life. His first child died of leukemia. His first son died of leukemia at the age of, I think, nine. Um, and he said it was just agony. He said, you know, we were lying to him all the time, basically, because we couldn't bear to tell him that he was dying. And he kind of knew we were we were lying and we knew, and it was just agony. And, you know, he, he his first marriage ended in divorce and he lost his eye. I mean, he went through tremendous hardship in building this extraordinary life. And, and, and Arnold, I mean, what a difficult life in many ways, and yet a triumphant life. And I, there was an extraordinary thing. I was talking to Arnold's son a few months ago after the book came out. He's a really wonderful guy. 
um, who's the, the president of Arnold Vandenberg's firm. And um, he was saying he, he had gone through a difficult period early in his career. I think he was in real estate and, and it just wasn't going well. And he said to his dad, did, you know, did, was it always easy for you? Was it, were, were you always successful? And he said, Arnold told him there were times when I was first starting out as a money manager where he said, I could barely get out of bed in the morning because I was so depressed. And he said, mm. he said, sometimes I would just put my head on my desk and weep. And what an extraordinary thing. Here, here's this guy I'm presenting as maybe it's, I, I'm kind of claiming that it's the most successful life of, of all of the investors I'm writing about. And yet it also included um, being, being hidden as a child, being in an orphanage where he's starved, um, being separated from his brother and his parents being malnourished, being beaten up at school, um, not going to college, being left by his first wife, starting his business as a money manager at the age of something like 35 with no clients, no money, no savings, no office, no track record, no degree from a business school, and so depressed that he would sometimes just put his head on the table and 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 weep. And um, the reason that's important is because we all go through these difficult periods and and I think when you look at when you look at very successful people and you realize that it wasn't a straight upward trajectory that's really heartening to know because there are times there are times when I've been in total despair about my writing career or there was one point where I was I mean this I, without wanting to be self-congratulatory the book's been really successful it's done really well it's well received there was a time where I was writing it where I was literally sitting on the floor of my kitchen, sort of with my head in my hands thinking, there is no fucking way I can finish this book. And my daughter, who yeah. is now 20 and was probably 16 or 17 at the time, was literally the one comforting me because she would come home from school and I would be writing or despairing about the writing. And she's the one kind of coaxing me through the pain of writing. And when you when you know that, when you know that it's not a straight upward trajectory, I think it changes your attitude towards your own pain. And so there's a, there's a beautiful line from a, a guy called Matthew McLennan that I wrote a, wrote about in the book in a chapter about resilience. It's called The Resilient Investor, where he, he says, you have to survive the dips. And he says, both in investing and life, you, you want to position yourself to benefit from the upward trajectory of mankind, the forward the forward progress of mankind, but you have to position yourself to survive the dips. And that simple idea of surviving the dips had a profound effect on me because during those periods where you're depressed or you feel overwhelmed or, uh, you know, your relationships aren't going well, or you're struggling with your job or the market's getting killed and your portfolio has been hit or you got laid off or whatever, just to know, okay, all of these guys have gone through this. They, nobody, no, however rich, however powerful, however handsome, however successful, however admired, they all go through the ringer. And knowing that is very comforting. It gives you, it gives you, it gives you strength. And you, you also write a lot about what you can learn from these great investors, just about how to be more resilient, about what their attitudes of mind are to, towards these difficult periods. And there's, there's, a, there's a wonderful thing from Charlie Munger where he says it's, it's good to, to view life as a series of adversities that give you an opportunity to pay well or badly. And yeah. that's, a, that's a really nice model, right? I, I mean, 
maybe it's a little negative to say life is a series of adversities, but the idea the idea that it's a series of adversities that give you an opportunity to behave well or badly is a really good one. And it's 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 our choice, right? We we take control. We don't have control over all of our external circumstances, but we do have a great deal of control over our state of mind, whether and so so these these habits like meditation and exercise or prayer or helping other people, all of these things that get you out of your own funk and, and enable you to build emotional resilience. They become really important, I think. And so one of the reasons why I write about that stuff is I, I think it's really important as an investor because you want to survive turmoil. But it's also really important in life because all, all of us go through these periods. COVID is a Absolutely. perfect example. Um, and you you have to get through the difficulty with kind of grace and equanimity as pos- as much as possible so that you can come out the other side. And I, I write about this a lot with Sir John Templeton, who, who lived through this period in, in World War II where the world seemed to be coming to an end. And as I point out there, the, the, what, he, what he realized when he made this massive bet at the bottom of the market during World War II was that the sun also rises. And, and right. so this whole theme of how you deal with adversity um, and how you become more resilient and how you achieve equanimity, I, I think is, is a really essential component of a successful life. And so when you, when you look at your life all of these different ways in which you want to build success and have a truly abundant, truly prosperous life. It's the, the money, the money is part of it. Having security, having peace of mind, you, you want to handle that. Well, it's not, it's not unimportant. It's not superficial to want to have wealth and independence and security and to be able to provide for your kids and, and to have a secure time. That's important. But as, as Arnold said in that quote that I read you, that long passage that I read you, it's also about health relationships um, philanthropy, sharing, uh, all, all of these, all of these other things, um, are what, are what make for a truly abundant life. And, and so, so in, in finishing the book, that's what I wanted to emphasize. I didn't, I didn't want to tell people, oh, here are the rules for getting rich and then kind of leave it at that and be like, yeah, I spent 25 years and interviewing, 50 legendary investors and this is all i managed to come out with is to tell you how to get rich it's like no i i want to i want to share what they figured out about how to deal with difficult times how to how to what what constitutes a truly abundant life what how, whether it's worth behaving morally whether whether it's a disadvantage to behave morally which i think it's a, abundantly clear it's not it, it's it's helpful to behave morally um your relationships critical so your, your peace of mind. So once you have clarity on this, because you've studied all of these great investors, at least at least you know sort of the, the playground in which you're playing. So we're all going to mess up. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to get off track. But at least you're like, oh, that's the game. So, so if I'm just maximizing my wealth, but I'm spending like crazy or I'm treating my family badly or I'm neglecting my friends, it's like there's, a, there's something... Um, as a kind of short circuit there. So, so I th- that, that's, that's why I study the great investors is, is so you can not, not because I'm trying to lionize them and make out that they're perfect because they're truly not perfect. Um, but it's to say, here, here's how you play this game in a wise and sensible way. Brilliant. And I, I asked this um, question to, to every guest kind of at the end of the show, You've talked a lot about um, all of these, you know, fascinating people and, and and successful people. 
But just uh, at the core, what does wealth mean to to you, William? Hmm. For, for me, it's really, really important to have the, f- the freedom to work with people I like and who I admire on something that's valuable and worthwhile and, and interesting and serves other people in some way. And that, that freedom, that independence um, is a really critical component of wealth. I, I've worked for people I didn't like or didn't admire before who I thought were bullies or not particularly talented. I've also worked for people who are unbelievably talented um, and wonderful people. Um, but for me, given the quirks of my personality, the independence and the freedom to do what I want to do um, in the way that I want to do it is really, really important. And and in some ways, this book was a kind of perfect example of it because it, it took me a, probably five years to write the book, which is insane. I mean, I was so obsessive about it and really trying to create something that potentially would be enduring and would help a lot of people over a long period of time. And so I wasn't trying to maximize the amount of money I would make off it. I was trying to create something that was of value and was true to my, to, to me and to what I care about. And so for me, for me, a big part of wealth is that freedom to operate in a way that's true to who you are that's aligned with who you are in a deep sense with all of your idiosyncrasies. And I, I think when I look at the great investors, they're, um, the things that make them happy are not the yachts and the planes. I, I do think one thing that's really consistent is it's the freedom to operate in a way that's aligned with who they are. And so I look at, I look at someone like Bill Miller, who I write about a lot, who's an extraordinary guy. Um, and he just, He's set up his life so he's just reading and thinking and investing. And that's what he's interested in. He's just a profoundly intellectual guy um, who's a great game player. And he's and he, the, the money really has stripped away all of these things that he doesn't want to do, like um, having to fill his car with gas or having to fly on commercial airlines. He flies on a private plane and having to decorate his home, which he – got his sister to do i think he hired his sister to do it you know, you know he's and so the money has actually it's not just the luxurious things it's actually that it's allowed him to strip away the stuff that he doesn't want to do that that doesn't play to his strengths doesn't interest him and distracts him from the things he cares about and i don't think you need to be a billionaire to do that i think you you need to be kind of very self-aware to know this is what i'm built for this is where i add value in the world um, this is what I really care about. And so I, I think that's one thing I've really learned from them is to try to try to be more aligned with who I am. And I, so I, it's a it's a long winded answer. But I, I think that's a useful thing for any of your listeners to go through is to is to think about what, what am I what am I really here to do? What, what am I good at? What do I love? Um, where am I adding value? Where, where am I serving other people? And kind of strip away a lot of the other stuff, and mm. and and the independence and the security to be able to do that, without constantly worrying about the next bill, the next paycheck, the next that um, that to me is true wealth. 
it's it's not it's not the luxury it's actually it's the freedom from worry and the ability to live in a way that's aligned with who you are and that's that's a very precious thing and it's not it's not an easy thing to achieve by any means but i but i think it's a it's a delusion if you think that the money itself is going to make you happy um or that the possessions you buy are going to make you happy it's it's much more about the independence to live in a way that's true to who you are and and then in addition not having to worry about uh, about bills and being able to do things like help other people and take care of your kids and make sure they'll be okay that that that's that's wealth to me does that make any sense that makes a lot of sense and interestingly this is just a personal observation when i've noticed people focusing on those things that make them who they are, those things they're genuinely interested in doing, they tend, the financial success tends to follow them if it wasn't there first. So, uh, you know, I think that just shows the power of how much happier, how much more effective you are when you're doing something that you truly enjoy and truly can, can get in the weeds in and focus on without feeling this, the stress of doing something you don't want to do working for someone you don't want to work for. I think it's also really key to build in some element of service. I I think there's some deeper deeper principle at work where when you're when you're doing stuff that helps other people it you it motivates you in a way that just trying to just trying to serve yourself doesn't really motivate you. And I there's a there's a really beautiful I I spend a lot of time studying um Kabbalistic wisdom, this old, this old kind of form of mysticism, which is really fascinating. I think they, they tapped into a lot of great kind of principles of life. And they talk about want, wanting to receive in order to share. And so you still want to receive blessings. You want to set up your life so that you have a beautiful family and a beautiful home and freedom and peace of mind and all, you know, all of these great blessings that all of us want, kids you love, friends you love, stuff like that. Um, but it has to be to share. And I think if it's just for you, there's a kind of short circuit. And so so when I look at someone like Arnold, in a way, I think he's a really beautiful embodiment of that. Um, yeah. I, I remember him him once, once he, he forgot that he told me this story, but I remember one time that I interviewed him a few years ago, he had just been in a, in a queue in a store. I think he was queuing up for like a hearing aid to get service or something like that. And there was a, a young girl in the line who he heard talking, who I think was this um, Latina who was about to leave Texas for the first time to go to, I think it was her cousin or her brother-in-law or something, was about to graduate from the Marines or something like that. And so she was going to to meet him and to celebrate. And Arnold reaches out to this total stranger and says, I'd like to give you this and gives her a hundred dollar bill and says, I want you to take your relative out to celebrate. And she was like, I can't take this from you. And he, you know, you're a total stranger. And he's like, no, no, you don't understand how much joy it gives me to be able to help you in that way. It's worth much more than the hundred dollars for me. And, you know, Arnold had totally forgotten that he told me this story and I'm mangling some of the details, but I think that's, um, that's really telling the the joy that he got out of helping this total stranger to go yeah. take her her relative out for the, on the first trip that she would ever have outside of the state of Texas. 
I forget who said it. I think I think it's something like uh, no one ever went broke by sharing or by giving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, you yeah. know, I think that's very true. And you know, and you know this this one thing that he reminded that girl of was something that had happened to him when he was very young, when he was a teenager. And I write about this in the book where he was, he, his, his father was a very, very tough man, made him support himself from the age of 13. And so he would have full-time jobs while he was at high school. And he was selling flowers on the street and he was an incredible salesman. He was a very charming guy. And so he wins the opportunity to sell flowers on the best street corner. And it's, you know, he's going to make lots of money because he's on the best street corner. And there's this kind of biblical storm that day. <laughs> and it just pours torrentially on him. And he's just totally drenched. And he just couldn't, you know, he's just cursing his bad luck. And this woman pulls up in her car, winds the window down and says to him, you need to get out of the rain. And he's like, I can't, I've got to sell these flowers. And she says, how much are they? And he tells her, and she buys all of the flowers. And she puts him in the car and she takes him to her home, gives him one of her husband's dry shirts and gives him soup to warm him up. And he said that, I think he was about 16 at the time. And he said, when someone shows you kindness like that, it touches your heart and it changes your whole life. And and he said that, um, he once told me, I didn't write about this in the book. He once told me that one of the reasons why it had such an enormous effect on him was that he didn't realize that non-Jewish people could be so kind to him. And um, so here was a stranger, you know, he'd just gone through the Holocaust and here's a stranger taking just, just this tremendous act of random kindness to him. And it just touched his heart and changed him. And so when he gave money to this girl in the queue, what I remember him telling me is I said to her, this is what this woman did to me. Um, and if you think about that, that's probably 55 or 60 years earlier. It's, it's 65, 66 years ago, probably. And right. so that act of kindness has kind of reverberated through his entire 82-year life. And, and so, that, so when, when you think about the impact of someone's actions – or of your own actions, it, it, it kind of, it, it has a deep impact on you. You start to think, okay, well, let, let me not be the person in the queue complaining, uh, you know, that it's moving so slowly, you know, let, let me think a little bit more of how Arnold would operate here. Um, and that's, uh, so, so, so there are, there are shallow lessons to learn from the great investors about how to maximize your wealth, and there are deep lessons to learn from the great investors about how to maximize your wealth. And I, and I, and I think that that's, that's one of the deepest because it gives you a real sense of what the money is for and what's actually going to make for, for a truly abundant life. And, I, and, and, and the great paradox is you see how happy Arnold is that he can do this stuff like that. And so he lives in a house that I think he bought for $350,000 many decades ago. So he's not, he's not living and he's like, we love the house. I would never move out of that house. So I think that's really fascinating that wealth has given him the freedom to behave in, in that way with, with a stranger who he sees an opportunity to share with. And that's so, so that, that kind of really subtly refines your sense of what wealth is. Yeah. Fast. It's fascinating. It's, it's, it really is inspirational. And, 
Um, I know we are up on time and I certainly appreciate you. Like I said, your book was incredible. I would encourage everyone to to read it because even with all of the little tidbits and stories you told today, there's there's so much more in the book that, that's really helpful on the investment side and things to help you just really think about your life and who you want to be and how you want to treat people and and um, and really understand that being a good person, being nice to people and treating people well can actually be a tool to help you uh, uh, become wealthier uh, financially and otherwise. So thanks again. And tell the tell the audience where they can uh, best place to find the book or to learn sure. more about you. Um, sure. And th- thank you first for this opportunity to chat. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it. And, and I'm very impressed with any of your listeners who've managed to survive this <laughs> this long through our very long discussion. So thank you. They're probably all drinking too. Uh, so. Exactly. Um, so, so yeah, my website is williamgreenwrites.com and um, you can connect with me on Twitter. I'm williamgreen72. Uh, you can connect with, with me on LinkedIn. And I, I really enjoy hearing from readers. I, I, I'm not perfect about this, but I really try to reply to them because I, I love hearing that something has actually affected them and helped them. And so one, one of the great joys of writing this book is that, um, there's a kind of ongoing dialogue of people writing to me and saying, Oh, I, I really am amazed by reading about this person and that had a real impact. And, you know, people will recommend books to me and I recommend books to them. And it's, it's, it's really nice. So feel, feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to, to hear from people. I feel like I know several of the, like I've met and had a conversation myself with several of the the people in the book, because you did such an incredible job of, of talking about your interactions with them and, 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 and their stories. So, um, excellent. Thanks again. And, um, I can't wait to read your next book. I assume uh, you're going to write another book. I, uh, I will. So it'll one, come out in 10 years. Yeah. One thing you can be sure of is it'll take me longer than I think it will. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, William. I uh, hope you. you enjoyed the bourbon and I appreciate it's your lovely. time. Thank you so much. And I've saved a bit of the bourbon that I'll be able to drink later in the week when I need it. Uh, excellent. So excellent. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Cheers. All right. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. If you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, please let me know. You can reach me at james at vermilionprivatewealth.com. And if you like what I'm doing, hit that subscribe or follow button and share the show with your friends or family members that might also enjoy it. The list of incredible guests is growing. There are many more in the pipeline, and I can't wait to share what's coming up. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.